to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In the 19th century, alcohol played a significant role in American culture, politics, and public health. Americans in the 1830s drank more per capita than any generation before or since, inspiring a powerful temperance movement in response. By 1860, average consumption had declined somewhat, but alcohol was still a major part of the lives of the soldiers who wore the blue and gray. We'll hear some of their stories tonight from Mark Will Weber, author of Muskets and Applejack, Spirits, Soldiers, and the Civil War, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of ECU, East Carolina University, not East Central University of Oklahoma or Edith Cowan University of Australia, but ECU, East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. Not speaking for ECU, for any of the three ECUs or anyone else but myself, and my guests will do likewise the same as we always do on Civil War Talk Radio. Our new chancellor is uh, making a push for ECU to become known as the next great national university. It's an ambitious goal. And the use of ECU as a trademark uh, is, is one of the aspects of the promotional campaign. Someone pointed out, well, there's already an ECU in, in Oklahoma. And my thought is, if, if we here, uh, if, if Pirate Nation, East Carolina, cannot get a higher name recognition than East Central University of Oklahoma, then we should just pack it up and go home. So we'll see about that. We are here on the east coast of uh, North Carolina, or close to the coast, bracing uh, this first Wednesday in 
September 2017 for the Hurricane Irma, which is currently offshore, uh, off of headed perhaps toward Florida. We don't know which way it'll go. Hope it doesn't hurt anybody anywhere, anyone listening to this show or anyone else. But on the chance it might turn north, my wife has suggested we need to go out and buy uh, disposable diapers and baby formula and all the things that people buy when a hurricane is approaching. We don't have any children uh, of that age or, or girls or college or older, but we just want to get with the spirit of things and, and hoard things so other people can't have them. Uh, so I'll keep you posted on that. Hopefully by next week there will be no news at all about Irma. It'll be old. And speaking of, of landmark events in the world, we are now up almost to 1,000 likes on Facebook. The uh, year of 1,000 likes continues for 980-some. Yours could be the 1,000th. And we are up to 400 shows. Tonight is the 401st episode of Civil War Talk Radio a landmark I would never have imagined in 2004 when we got started doing this. It just seemed like a fun thing to do for a week and then another week, and here we are 400 weeks later still doing new interesting books every week on Civil War Talk Radio. Our scheduled guest for tonight, I should uh, mention, if you're wondering where is Gary Cross, uh, Civil War Battlefield Guide, licensed Battlefield Guide at Gettysburg. Gary is fine. Uh, last time he was supposed to be on the show last spring, as as I'm sure you remember, and he he was unable to be on the show. Uh, I didn't know why at the time. It turned out uh, afterward, discovered he'd, he'd suffered an accident and was was quite seriously injured. Fortunately, he is all better. And while we rescheduled him for tonight. Uh, when checked earlier this week, something else had come up. He was unable to make it. So we've rescheduled him again for November 8th. He'll be on the calendar. He promises third time is the charm. Fortunately, there's no, no health issue involved this time, so that's perfectly good. And we look forward to talking with Gary about the Gettysburg battlefield on November 8th. By that time, November 8th will be well into the football season, which just began this past weekend uh, here at ECU. That's not East Central University, by the way, but East Carolina University. Here at ECU, we scheduled a lower division school, champion of their division, but lower division, so surely nothing could go wrong, uh, says the talk show host who was a Michigan alum and remembers 10 years ago to this week the, the event we just call the horror uh, schedule a lower division school that won their division national title the year before. In that case, Appalachian State, and bad things happen. Well, ECU learned its lesson. Uh, James Madison came to town and thumped the Pirates seriously. But Michigan won their game, so we'll, we'll call it a wash. And the in the true football, uh, the ECU women's soccer team is undefeated this season. Four wins and one draw in five uh, matches so far, so things going well. And I know many of you are, are eagerly consulting with your bookmakers about this year's uh, uh, Pitt-Greenville Soccer Association Recreational League. Uh, we want to get your wagers in early, but I have to tell you, uh, this season I'm, I'm hanging them up. I'm, I'm not going to play. I'm getting too old and heavy to keep up with the much younger people in that league. 
I hope to still play the occasional over 50 tournament, but uh, uh, but no more weekly soccer reports, first-hand soccer reports uh, for the time being. I'm thinking about playing golf more often to make up for this, but I promise there will be no golf stories on this show, ever. Uh, I do want to share with you a, a story that's not golf-related, but history-related, and, and a sad one. Um, my colleague, uh, Dr. John Tilley of the History Department, uh, originally at the Mariners Museum, and then a long career spent here at East Carolina. Uh, John Tilley was the, the father of public history at ECU, and John died recently. This past summer, uh, going up for the uh, this hallowed ground battlefield tour, I stopped at Drew, Drew Reeves Bluff on the James River on my way there. Very interesting sight if you're ever in that neighborhood, uh, worth seeing. And the Park Service doesn't have a visitor center, but they had some tables and they were giving away stuff, pamphlets, other things. And they had a stack of, uh, uh, I'd say, 17 by 14 inch paper card uh, uh, printed with the parts from which to make a paper model of the USS Monitor. A, uh, you, you use scissors and glue, and you can make a really nice model of a monitor out of this. And in tiny print at the bottom, I saw it was designed by Dr. John Tilley uh, many, many years ago. Uh, ship modeling was one of John's many talents, along with being a dedicated history professor. And most of all, uh, John set an awesome example of how to live cheerfully and well in spite of uh, physical disabilities. And uh, he retired, finished his re- phased retirement a year ago, and was, was away from us in the department for the past year. We missed him then, and we, we certainly miss him now. There will be a memorial service for him this Friday. So if you've been saving up your cash for the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund all summer, I'll say this week instead, please consider sending it to the East Carolina Musical Arts Education Foundation. Uh, in the name of, of John Tilley. That's where his family is asking donations to go. So, other Civil War news to catch up quickly before we uh, get to our guest. Christopher Phillips won the Tom Watson Brown Prize uh, for his book this past year, uh, The uh, the Rivers Ran Backward, The Civil War and the Remaking of the American Middle Border. Uh, that's given by the uh, Society of Civil War Historians for the best book, Civil War book of the year. And uh, uh, Dr. Phillips was on this show on February 22nd, 2017, so you can go back and listen to that. If you haven't heard it, uh, find out about this really excellent book that breaks new ground in studying the, the, the border area uh, before and during the Civil War. This is also just about the last call for the uh, Civil War Roundtable Congress coming up in Centerville, Virginia. Uh, If you're curious about that, go to www.pscwrt.org slash congress. That's Puget Sound Civil War Roundtable initials uh, .org and find out about that event. Maybe it's sold out by now. I hope so, but check it out. And, of course, always check out www.impedimentsofwar.org, the Civil War 
talk radio companion website. Find out who's going to be on the show next week. Mark A. Knoll joins us to discuss the Civil War as a Theological Crisis. Very interesting uh, book. On the 20th, we've got the director of the Shriver House Museum in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Her name is Nancy Gudmestad, and she will share with us what it's like to direct a, a small house museum in the heart of Civil War country. On the 27th, Jeff Richmond returns to the show. He's been here before, uh, connected with a uh, cemetery in Brooklyn, and he has a new book called The Gallant Sims, A Civil War Hero Rediscovered. And there's a whole bunch more. I'll give you one more. October 4th, Ken Heinemann has written about the Ewing family of Ohio, Thomas Ewing and the others. The book called Civil War Dynasty. How could one resist that title if you're writing about the Ewing family? Uh, lots more after that. Check out impedimentsofwar.org or the Facebook page for Impediments of War to find out who's going to be on the show next, including tonight's originally scheduled guest, Gary Cross. He'll be back to us on November 8th. Well, tonight we have with us uh, author, uh, first-time visitor to the show, Mr. Mark Will Weber. His author is his, his book rather is Muskets and Applejack: Spirits, Soldiers, and the Civil War. Uh, this is a brand new book. I mean, literally, the release date was yesterday, September fifth, twenty seventeen. So uh, we're the first ones talking about it. Uh, let's find out what's between the covers. Uh, Mr. Will Weber, are you there? I am, Jerry. Thank you. Welcome to the show. I'm uh, thrilled to be on it, even if I'm a pinch hitter. Well, I I do appreciate you being able to step in. Your uh, publicist had written to me uh, a couple weeks ago saying, you know, new book, interesting book. Uh, You want to get this fellow on the show? And I had to tell her, well, we're actually scheduled up through, uh, through the end of the semester into January. And uh, there it sat, and then uh, when I talked to to Mark uh, to Gary Cross, unfortunately he couldn't make it tonight. And I really do appreciate your ability to step in uh, on short notice and and join us. And congratulations on the publication of the book. Thank you. So, uh, tell me a little bit about your background. Uh, the the dust jacket says journalist it also says uh, alco historian uh, where does one get trained <laughs> to do that well that's it's uh, sort of like being a kentucky colonel i think it's, it's a <laughs> bit of an honorary title <clears throat> but uh yeah i got that from some other guys at this event called tale of the cocktails and a lot of them are more mixologists and they were talking about what they do, and they said, well, and they were serious. They said, well, we're alco historians, so they're writing books about the origins of the Manhattan or what Hemingway drank, um, that kind of thing. And uh, I, I sort of, uh, at the other end, what I sort of like is what happens when history and alcohol collide, because a lot of times interesting things occur. So... You've written other books uh, about alcohol and different aspects of history before this one. Is that correct? Yes. About uh, in 2014, I wrote a book called uh, Mint Juleps with Teddy Roosevelt, and the subhead was the complete history of presidential drinking. And I did basically what every president drank from Washington to Obama. 
<clears throat> Fortunately, this was uh, finished before our current president, who doesn't drink uh, anything other than diet soda. So, the uh, when did the Civil War strike you as, a, as an appropriate or interesting topic for this approach? Well, I actually, when I was doing, uh, of course, I knew Grant and Lincoln were involved in the Civil War, but I was surprised um, as I was researching Garfield and Hayes and uh, Benjamin Harris and, uh, and those, and McKinley even, uh, that they were all Civil War officers and they had drinking stories. Uh, even Harrison, who was really very temperate and not much of a drinker, more of a, a Bible guy, uh, had some interesting alcohol Civil War stories. And I thought, you know, there's definitely a book in this. And it was just a question of, uh, I knew the stuff would be out there, but trying to bring them all under one roof and uh, hopefully make some sort of, a, at least a mosaic uh, out, of the, out of it where you'd come away with certain impressions about how alcohol affected the war. Uh, an interesting metaphor, the mosaic. I, I like that. Uh, I don't want to pursue that further. I also want, I'm curious about the research approach, but uh, we're going to take our first break shortly. And so uh, we'll come back and ask about research uh, involved in this book. Uh, our guest tonight, Mark Will Weber. The book is Muskets and Applejack, Spirits, Soldiers, and the Civil War. My name is Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Mark Will Weber, author of Muskets and Applejack, Spirits, Soldiers, and the Civil War. In our first segment, we just 
got started talking about the uh, origin of the book, part of uh, the idea of uh, histories of what uh, what people drank in the past, presidents or others, and of course, uh, Civil War era uh, soldiers and civilians, for that matter, drank a great deal. Um, Mark, I'm curious about the research for the book. It, clearly, there's an extensive bibliography. You've got a lot of uh, um, books you consulted to put this together. The And then the book itself consists of uh, a series of stories based on these primary sources, for the most part, uh, on, on the, the journals or letters and so on that you've encountered. As a historian looking at it, one thing that struck me is is there are no reference notes connecting each story to each source. And I'm, is right. that something that the, that the publisher wanted it that well, we, way, or we kind of went your... back and forth on that? And um, I, I mean, for me, and it, this wasn't an academic book, as I'm sure you're probably used to. It was mm-hmm. more of a, a readability thing where. I often find myself sometimes with these books where I'm flipping back to the footnotes in the back the whole time. And a lot of times I'm finding the more interesting stuff in the footnotes. And I'm thinking, you know, why is this in the body of the story? Um, And so I think one of the downsides of of doing it the way I did it uh, is that you're constantly referencing people in the body of the work. So I'm saying in very, Chestnut's diary on such and such a day, she said. Mm-hmm. But to me, to flip back and read basically that that was on that day in her diary is almost redundant. But it's it's peculiar, and I'm sure to you, it's pro- it's uh, it's probably a, a hollow sounding knock on the on the wooden panel. Uh, but that's that's the way we did it. So. Well, no, I think it's very interesting because you, you, as I as you say it, I realize you're right. In many of the the, the stories. And and the, the, for the readers who haven't seen the book yet, because it is, uh, as I said at the beginning, brand new, just out a day, uh, a typical story might be, looks like a page, page and a half, some of them two pages, uh, uh, very readable, something you can just pick up and, and read a, a piece of and put it down. And within them, often it does say, uh, uh, you you tell who, who told the story, what book it was from, their memoir, their collection of letters. So... At least one can can then dig it up if if you wanted to pursue it, but right. I guess that ties in with with the audience question. Um, and frequently, uh, you mentioned academic books. I, as listeners to the show are aware, maybe half of the books uh, authors we talk to on the show are, are professionally trained historians, and at least right. half are not. Are 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 lawyers, doctors. Uh, engineers, teachers, all kinds of people who just have a passion for the Civil War, and they they take that and write a book about it. So there's a lot of writing that is not uh, necessarily aimed at academic audiences. Did you have a specific audience in mind for this book? Well, obviously, people interested in the Civil War and uh, history buffs in general. And I would say, in, in a lot of ways, the presidential book we did was very similar. It was written in the same fashion and it it, uh, it did pretty well and it's still doing relatively well for a book that's been out for three years but basically I wanted it to be very accessible uh, history so you know does that limit me to the, the top end uh, 
academics that are, are authorities on, you know, one of the more obscure battles of the war, probably. But yeah, we're sort of looking for general Civil War buffs, I suppose, more than uh, than uh, professors. But, uh, you know, hopefully the topic will resonate with everybody. I hope so. Well, it's certainly an important topic, and I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the idea of trying to reach a broad audience uh, and using a technique, as you have here, the, the sort of bite-sized chunk that, that one can read a piece and then move on or not. I wrote a quasi-biography of Abraham Lincoln using a similar uh, structure, a question-and-answer structure, so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm very sympathetic to that approach. Uh, one an obvious question then for someone who's I've, I've looked through the book uh, our listeners haven't seen it yet uh, which are there some stories that as you read them really stuck with you that you uh, a question I'm sure you're bound to get is well what's your favorite story in the book uh, that may not be easily answered but but are, is there one or two that, uh, that that really stuck with you well there's there's probably a good dozen or two that I'd love, but um, I would say there's certain themes that I was shooting for. One was to sort of explore um, what was the role of alcohol in atrocities, Uh, because you don't hear a lot about that in the Civil War. We sort of get led down this romantic path about the war, and there certainly is that aspect to it. But um, what I discovered is in the really hellacious incidents in the war, the burning of Columbia, the burning of Chambersburg, alcohol is a big factor in that. So that was one of the less savory aspects of the book, but it it did prove out to be uh, the case that alcohol is often involved in these atrocities. So I was looking at that theme, sort of. Uh, There's some really funny bits in there that are, I think, funny. It sort of gives comic relief and a balance uh, to the the more uh, disheartening uh, aspects of the war. So uh, there are that, but there, if you want a specific incident, is one of them I love is uh, the taking of the Burnside Bridge, well, the Rohrbach Bridge uh, back in the day uh, at the end of the Antietam battle, where uh, Ferraro rides up and asks the 51st uh, Pennsylvania, 51st New York, if they'll take the bridge. And apparently they'd had their whiskey rations revoked for some infractions earlier in the in the month, and so some uh, corporal or something says, well, if we take the bridge, will you restore our whiskey rations? And he, he says that he will, even if he has to send to New York for the whiskey himself, and they take the bridge, and apparently, if you can believe the regimental history, they got their whiskey. So I like uh, that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a great story. The, the uh, I, I'm intrigued by by the uh, your, your comment about the role of alcohol, the recurring role of alcohol in atrocities, uh, that anticipated a question I was going to ask. As, as I'm reading through the sort of series of anecdotes, uh, the, the question that, that I came to the book with was, what's the, is there a deeper theme? Is it, it how is it more than just one alcohol story after another? And you answered that uh, with your, your comment about the atrocities that the book is not just a feel good. Here's some funny drinking stories. No. Uh, and I think it, it's been billed a little bit as that, uh, with the 
PR people, you know, because I've mm-hmm. already seen things that said, oh, it's a, you know, a hilarious <laughs> read of what generals got drunk. And it's not that at all, really. I mean, there are funny stories in there, and I think they're legit. But, you know, mm-hmm. when you really delve into something like the Applejack raid and uh, what I think are atrocities that took place on uh, that raid, um, it gives a whole different spin on it. But there are some funny things. One of the funny things that I love is I didn't realize that these uh, regimental bands, when they were in camp, they would uh, habitually go serenade the, the officers at night. They'd, they'd know that so-and-so liked the favorite song, so they'd go to his uh, headquarters or his tent and play that song. And, yes. and uh, usually the officer would then come out and divvy out some grams of whiskey to the uh, musicians. So Phil Kearney used to like Mockingbird, so they would go play Mockingbird for Phil Kearney, and he'd come out and give them whiskey. And I stumbled on this one entry <clears throat> where Kearney actually came out and gave the band whiskey to go away. They were that bad. <laughs> uh, so he comes out and, uh, and says, please go away. Here's your whiskey. Stop playing, and they do. Uh, so, you know, things like that are really hilarious, I think. Uh, not ha-ha, roll on the floor, hilarious, but uh, funny, and they, they give you a little uh, respite between all the, the hell that, uh, you know, people endured at uh, the crater and uh, in the cornfield at Antietam or whatever, you know. It's, uh, so it, it's a nice, uh, I think, seesaw effect where you, you have some of these fun incidents in there. Also, early on, when I first started researching, I found this wonderful quote from Sickles where he he claims early in the war, he says that it's whiskey that caused the war. It was whiskey that caused all the angry speeches and by the Southerners in Congress. And he said Congress was all about whiskey all day and whiskey and gambling all night. And he blames whiskey um, rather dramatically for the inflaming the, the, the path to war, which uh, it's definitely embellished and overstated, but it's still an interesting uh, concept, I think. And, you know, you look at the Brooks Sumner Canning thing where uh, it's hardly ever written that, that Brooks was pretty drunk the night before he decided to go Cane Sumner, you know, and, and possibly even the next morning, according to uh, Mrs. historian from, I think she was at Oklahoma, that wrote a book about that uh, incident. So, you know, it's, it's even before the war, it's a factor, you know, it's, it's uh, sort of intertwined with uh, the building tensions, if you will. I think that is an interesting thing that does emerge from from the book. The uh, the the quantity of stories ends up having a quality of its own. Uh, that that you found so many examples, uh, and uh, and these are from published sources. It's not uh, they're they're out there and they're they're findable, and there's so many of them. Uh, and, and presumably you, you've got the, the most intriguing ones here. So Sickles' quote makes perfect sense that, that American society was awash in alcohol in a way that that it is not uh, perhaps today. We have other uh, public health problems with, with other substances. Right. But the, the description uh, uh, you have of uh, English visitors observing Americans drinking at breakfast, drinking at lunch, Right. Uh, that, that alcohol was there all the time, and the number of generals alleged to be drunk in battle is so great that you have to assume at least some of those stories are true. Yes, I mean, especially to the point where they go to the trouble to try to court martial uh, uh, 
Dixon and um, or Miles, uh, Dixon Miles, yeah. and things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, you, you see that much smoke. There's probably some <clears throat> fire there, or Shanks Evans, who's being followed around on the battlefield by a guy that has a little barrel of whiskey on his back, his aide, you know, his uh, what do they call him? His barrel, barrelita, or something like that. And uh, so there's some blatant examples of officers that are overindulging. Uh, I think another interesting aspect of the book, and I sort of knew there there would be something about the Irish in there and and their mm-hmm. drinking and and sort of the uh, the way the Irish were treated by the uh, alleged uh, Americans. And but I also was surprised that the Germans uh, come under fire a lot too. So they they're constantly making fun of the Germans and the Irish, and they're imitating their accents. And alcohol is almost inevitably weaved into these taunts. Uh, of these ethnic groups, and I thought that was fascinating the more I dug into it. Um, yeah. No, go ahead, please. Well, I was just going to say, uh, the, uh, one of my favorite quotes in the book is from the, the French uh, general, uh, who was a French baron, I'm not going to say his name correctly, uh, de Trobriand. De, de Trobriand, uh, that's pretty right. good. <laughs> and he goes on for sentences you know, lambasting the Irish, their, their uniforms are always dirty. Uh, inevitably, when we find that alcohol has come into the camp, we always trace it back to the Irish. It goes on and on. And, and then finally, he says, but once the battle started, uh, these spots on their uniforms were replaced by bullet holes and blood. And uh, they were lying, you know, basically, he says they were lions in the, in the fight once the, the battle took off. And I love that sort of juxtaposition of uh, of the slurs and the slights, and then the coming around to say, despite all their faults, these guys were were great to have with us in battle. Well, there, there's no question that that taps into a major theme in American history uh, before the Civil War: the the immigration of Germans and Irish, and and their alcohol. That that I, I mentioned the very introduction. Uh, 1830s, you have a, a real health crisis in America with with alcoholism, and then in the 1840s, you have the the Irish uh, potato famine and the Irish immigration, and so the move to ban e- either to persuade people not to drink the Washingtonian movement or the 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 Maine law movement to prohibit alcoholism, uh, prohibit alcohol sales is closely tied into cultural conflict uh, with anti-immigration sentiment. The, the know-nothing party, the nativists who don't want the right. Irish coming here uh, when they, they don't want they don't want whiskey or beer either. Uh, these are not things that, that uptight New England Protestant Yankees are interested in and they don't, right. they don't want the immigrants or their alcohol. Yeah, but the Civil the, War... Uh, Roman Romanism. <laughs> exactly. That, that, that's yet another uh, tie in the, the uh, w- with the cultural stereotypes and, and anti-immigrant sentiment and alcohol. So so uh, the role that the Irish soldiers play then by demonstrating with their bravery that they're, uh, uh, they, they deserve a place at the table is, is central to the whole story. There are so many interesting stories uh, uh, that do involve alcohol in this sense. Um, where do they get alcohol? Well, it was just, it was almost like a second currency among the regular people. So anytime they went into a town, there was people uh, at the railway stations willing to sell it to them. They they had it in camp. Their ingenuity to bring it into camp is incredible, and uh, that was a fascinating part of the story. And I 
I didn't really know to what depths they went to. I mean, early in the war, they would often go out with their musket and fill up their rifle barrel with whiskey, trot back in as if they had nothing, pour the whiskey into another container, drink it. Uh, and soon the, the, the provost uh, guards got wise to that trick and they would check. But then, you know, they were carving out watermelons and pumpkins and putting booze in there. They'd bring in a, a, a cart of, say, pickles, but every third jar would be whiskey. Um, they'd bring in canned peaches, but there'd be like three peaches and a wash of uh, whiskey inside the, the can. So they were very uh, ingenious on how to get it. And in fact, I think it was, uh, again, Ferraro uh, who said that, you know, you could put my guys on a desert island and <laughs> where there's no alcohol. And if you gave them 10 hours, they'd come back and somehow they would, would have found, uh, they would have made every rock asunder and they would have come back with alcohol. So they were very resourceful. And of course, the, the officers were allowed to have it uh, to an extent, you know, uh, and it probably caused a little uh, tension between the enlisted men and the, the shoulder straps, as they used to like to call them. So they, they were extremely resourceful in coming up with this. And uh, even when nothing else was available, they would still find find ways to do this. And there are some really fascinating stories uh, examples of, of, of how soldiers did this in the book. Uh, the book we're talking about tonight is called Muskets and Applejack, Spirits, Soldiers, and the Civil War. The author is Mark Will Weber. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We'll come back and talk more about it in a few moments on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Mark Will Weber, author of Muskets and Applejack, Spirits, Soldiers, and the Civil War. We've been talking about the 
role that alcohol played in the Civil War. This book is a collection of stories, accounts, anecdotes in which alcohol is involved. They are taken uh, almost uh, exclusively from uh, first-hand accounts of those who were there and what they saw, uh, ways in which alcohol affected soldiers, enlisted volunteers, generals, uh, civilians. Uh, Mark, before we go back into the, the book itself for a minute, uh, let me invite you to, to dish, author to author, on the, uh, the challenges of publishers. Uh, the, you mentioned uh, a bit about the, uh, the public publicity material, which I got in, in, along with the, the review copy of your book. Uh, the, the, the reference, uh, the, the description that this is a fun take on how alcohol uh, united America during a discordant period, and, and as, as as we discussed in the previous segment, one of your sort of subtle recurring themes is the prevalence of alcohol in moments of atrocities. When uh, you you exampled uh, the burning of Columbia or the burning of Chambersburg, uh, alcohol plays a role in those, and they're not fun moments, and and obviously you didn't mean them to be. Uh, the publicity also says that. Uh, the work is interspersed with authentic recipes and no, has never not. before told <laughs> shocking accounts of how alcohol played a role. Well, first of all, yes, listeners, uh, if you buy the book, don't look for the recipes. Uh, they're not there. Uh, I, I'm guessing that might have been a formula in a previous book, but it's just one yeah. of those things. When you work with a publisher, you 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 know they do their best, you do your best, but things happen. Uh, uh, yeah, I was sort of shocked to see that one because uh, I do have a recipe in there for pine top whiskey. Uh, I found that. It looks awful. Yeah. It, it's probably like drinking less toil or some sort of cleaning <laughs> product, uh, which most these gorillas were apparently fond of drinking. And basically, you boil pine needles in a kettle and then uh, take the sort of resin from it and add it to a vat of uh, of green alcohol. So it's incredibly potent, uh, but it has to smell like cleaning fluid. So it's yeah, probably, it, it, in fact, they, even in the diaries, the guys are constantly referring to it as bile. <laughs> yeah, it does not sound good at all. So, uh, yeah. so no, recipes are not, not a feature of the book. Um, uh and, I'm glad and of that, by and, the way. <laughs> yeah, I, I, again, I mean, if, until you write a book, you, you, uh, this is for anyone listening, until you write a book, you don't realize how many people are involved in, in it, and in some cases, how little they may know about it or not have actually read it, right. yet they influence the dust jacket and the publicity and, and all kinds of other things that go along with it. Uh, you just have to live with that. When the publicity says these are never before told and shocking tales, uh, <laughs> most listeners to the show will have heard some of these before. You, you use some very appropriate sources that you'd expect to see. Uh, Grant's memoirs, Mary Chesnut's diary. Uh, right. These hardly never before told. Uh, what you've done yeah. here is assemble them in a new way. But uh, <laughs> Right. Well, the other thing that horrified me is I saw a couple places where they, they quote the uh, Lincoln thing where he says, you know, find a barrel, that whatever Grant's drinking and send a barrel to all my generals. And I, I do mention that in the text, but I, I mentioned that it's probably an embellished whisper down the lane kind of mm-hmm. uh, quote that, that may not have been said 
at all by Lincoln. And one of those, there's really no proof that he said it. And I think in Team Arrivals, uh, the author trots around that by saying a story was circulated that, you know, so she's able to sneak it in because it's a fun quote, but right. generally you can't, can't find, uh, you know, any real historical sources that that was said. And I think Lincoln himself even said, I don't know if I said that. Exactly. So, that, that, that's correct. He, it, it circulated at that time and, uh, and Lincoln disavowed making it up. It, it was already, it was an old story. Supposedly, um, King George had said that about James Wolfe when he yes. captured Quebec. Said he, he's mad. Well, I have the same dog bite the other generals. Right. Uh, so, so it's an old joke even in the 1860s. And and I I saw that reference also in the publicity. And at, I was relieved when I came to the, your description of it, where you say, "Oh, it's an apocryphal story." Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, because I cringe when that's presented as fact, <laughs> but uh, you can see, I mean, it, it's gained so so much traction over the years that when I was working on the book, somebody would say, oh, do you have that thing in there Lincoln said about Grant? And, I'm like, and I had to painfully explain to them that mm. probably never happened, and, 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 and Lincoln is probably, you know, has dozens and dozens of similar uh, things attributed to him they never said, uh, but... So, yeah, that's painful for me to, to see that circulated, but I guess I'll just uh, jump through the, the hoops there. I'm sure I've made other mistakes in, in here. I don't, it's, uh, when I did the president's book, I, I had a couple in there, you know, that I, I didn't like seeing uh, on the backside, but it's hard to walk through a whole book and not uh, slip up here and there. No, absolutely not. Now, we're mentioning uh, Grant uh, in the Grant Lincoln story. Uh, Grant's use of alcohol is, is probably the most famous and most controversial uh, example of alcoholism in the Civil War. And you, you cite, you, you quote a number of stories uh, about it. Uh, and, and uh, well, we'll cut to the chase. What, what's your take, uh, having read different accounts about Grant and alcohol? What, how do you see him? Well, my take is that Grant was probably an episodal alcoholic. I think he knew he had a problem. He could go weeks and not drink, apparently, but as soon as he did drink, um, it was off to the races. I mean, he wasn't very good at it. And I think people always go to me, oh, Grant was, a, when I did the president's book, Grant was a big drinker, right? And I'm like, no, Grant was a bad drinker. You know, we, we look at um, him on the 50, and you see this sort of hefty, burly-looking guy, but Grant in the Mexican and American war was like 130 pounds and five foot seven or something. I don't know, but a slight guy sort of built more like me than the guy on the 50. And so I, he was a lightweight. He would, his face uh, would be flushed by one drink. If you uh, believe some of the, the, the people that saw him drink and he was the opposite of Buchanan who could drink forever and not show it. Uh, he was more like Nixon. Nixon, uh, you know, two glasses of wine, and he was ready to drunk dial, you know. So I think he wasn't very good at drinking. Um, I think the most believable reference, you know, because you have people who go, oh, it's exaggerated, Grant never drank. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I think when you read some of Rollins' letters to his fiancée, uh, knowing that Rollins, you know, was trying to do his best to protect Grant from getting alcohol, and he makes references this is his, to this. his aide de camp we're talking about. Yes. Uh, it, it, yes. Go ahead, Tim. Yeah, and he makes reference to the 
I thought he learned his lesson in New Orleans. And by that, he meant when Grant fell off his horse in New Orleans. So to me, that's Rollins saying Grant was drunk when he fell off his horse in New Orleans and was laid up for, you know, I think a matter of weeks uh, where he couldn't do anything while he recovered. And uh, so I think Rollins at that time period, I'm not saying maybe later uh, after Grant's uh, after the war's over, maybe Rollins is embellishing his role in protecting Grant. That's what you always hear of the people that don't want you to take Rollins' stuff seriously. Well, he was trying to make himself seem more important. But I think in 1862 or three, uh, what Rollins is writing to his fiance, um, it rings with truth. I mean, it, when you do these books, you have to make some 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 calls on what, what mm-hmm. sounds fabricated and embellished and what sounds rings truthful you know it's not to to say that we know for sure so i do think he had a problem i think uh you know rollins knew it uh what was his nephew smith tried to bring a bottle of wine in camp once that grant's mother had sent to him and rollins said you tell the general's family they're damn fools you know so he knew that uh you know, grant uh probably shouldn't have any alcohol as possible. And other than Julia, Grant's wife, he Rollins was probably the, the best uh, protector of Grant. So that, that, that is interesting how you know, one emerges. Uh, you, you made a reference that you, you read a lot of stuff and you just get a sense of what rings true and what doesn't. Sometimes uh, it's hard to put a finger on the historical method, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll hear a Lincoln alleged quote, and I'll just say, it doesn't sound like Lincoln. I'm, I'm pretty sure he never right. said that. Um, it's often hard to prove a negative, but, uh, and, and so with the Grant story. Now, about Lincoln, one of the interesting things that your book brings out, you have a number of accounts of uh, Southerners, of Confederates getting drunk, celebrating when they hear of the assassination of Lincoln. And that, yeah. that story, those stories don't get as much play typically uh, but you found a, f- a few of them uh, numerous and um you know you would expect quantrill and his 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 boys with the quote that they had something to the effect that i you know we're celebrating because uh we, you know we think uh, lincoln's uh, in hell and frying yankee something or other on on his ribs or so i had some really grotesque reference yes. about the death of lincoln and they're celebrating it which you know that that doesn't surprise me that you know, Quantrill and those those guys would be like that. But when you hear like uh, John Wise, for instance, admitting, hey, back then at that time, you know, we we thought better of it later. But at the time we were we you know, we were overjoyed because, you know, we felt like we, we had gotten some revenge of sorts. Uh, but then, of course, no sooner did this happen and they're dreading the, the drunken little tailor. Uh, how is Johnson going to treat them? So. But yeah, there's lots of references there, and um, you know, I, I like the the one. I hope it's true. I mean, a, a Beauregard coming out of his tent and telling them to to shut up uh, when the guys were celebrating about uh, Lincoln's assassination. Yeah, you mentioned Andrew Johnson, uh, Lincoln's vice president and successor, and the story of him getting drunk at their inauguration is well known. Uh, you take the story, uh, your book, into the post-war era a little bit and talk about. The Johnson drinking uh, on on the campaign trail or on the famous uh, swing around right. the circle, and Grant uh, as well. And I, I actually think some of the uh, uh, 
the uh, evidence about Grant as president is interesting, where he became more secretive about his drinking and drank better stuff. He was drinking high-end wines and brandies, but sneaking out with his cronies at night. And there's some uh, stuff from uh, Donaldson's diary, which really hasn't been widely circulated. I, I got it from, uh, I think, the, uh, the Hayes Museum or one of the Ohio presidential museums is where I got that. And they told me that nobody had ever printed it outside of a, like a kind of a museum journal. And I had already printed it in the president's book, but I reused it for this, but where he's sneaking out to uh, sample uh, brandies and stuff. And the great story of this New York uh, journalist who comes down to play poker and drink with Grant. He wakes up in the morning and finds that Grant has made him the ambassador to Greece. (laughs) and and Donaldson in his diary is incredulous he goes is is playing poker and drinking with Grant a a criteria to be the minister to Greece but I was proud of finding that one for an amateur because um, you know I don't as I said I've never read that in a Grant biography or anywhere else so uh, I think that's relatively uh, uncirculated uh, I don't I feel presumptuous using the word scholarship but uh, something that hasn't been seen a lot let's put it that way well, it, it's it, the the material is out there, and, and uh, people who look for it can find it. It doesn't require you don't need a license to uh, uh, to practice history. Uh, well, the to return to a theme of a moment ago, the the publisher uh, helpfully supplies some suggested questions, and they also have it on the back of the book, so as if to uh, almost require uh, the interviewer to ask. Uh, did the North or the South drink more? And let me preface that by saying I know the answer, and I don't think it's an important question either, but let, I'm going to ask it anyway. Well, what did you find? Yeah. Well, I, I think it was very, very equal. Um, I mean, you can you can sort of look at it a bit askew if you start with the, the rebel brass, the, the most noted names of Lee Stewart and Jackson, who barely drank at all. Um, I mean, even when Jackson's wounded, he doesn't want to take whiskey, and McGuire has to sort of coax him into to doing it because he knows he's going to cut his arm off. Uh, so I think at the top, you have more teetotalers with the, on the rebel side. Oh, Longstreet loved to drink and play poker. Uh, and, of course, you get down to people like Shanks Evans, and, and then it's, it's, it's pretty crazy on the rebel side, too. Uh, but I think the, the top brass on the Union side tended to drink more. But they had a couple teetotalers, too. McAllister, who was wounded at Gettysburg and, again, didn't want to take whiskey. So the, the surgeon mixed it into his milk uh, mm. secretively because he knew he was going to need it as a painkiller. But the enlisted men, you know, I would say pretty even. You know, they, 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 the, the Union guys tended to get better stuff. I mean, the blockade certainly prevented uh, some of the high-end European wines from getting to the southern uh, side very much. And the Union, despite Stanton's uh, no champagne or oysters on the Potomac, they were still drinking champagne at the end of the war. So uh, the officers never stopped uh, imbibing. So it sounds like an, an even match in that score. Well, yeah, we are still made. Uh, we are. Uh, it, it's time, gentlemen, as they say at the bar, where where our hour is up. Uh, our guest tonight has been Mark Will Weber, author of Muskets and Applejack: Spirits, Soldiers in the Civil War. Mark, thank you so much for being here on short notice. Uh, it was a pleasure talking with you. 
Well, thanks for having me, Jerry. I really enjoyed it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.